Part 2 of History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 5, by Friedrich Schiller, Part 2. In the meantime, he consoled himself with the triumph of seeing most of the Protestant states compelled by necessity to embrace this peace. The Elector of Brandenburg, Duke William of Weimar, the Princes of Anhalt, the Dukes of Mecklenburg, the Dukes of Brunswick-Lunenburg, the Hanse towns, and most of the imperial cities acceded to it. The Landgrave William of Hesse long wavered, or affected to do so, in order to gain time and to regulate his measures by the course of events. He had conquered several fertile provinces of Westphalia and derived from them principally the means of continuing the war. This, by the terms of the treaty, he was bound to restore. Bernard, Duke of Weimar, whose state as yet existed only on paper, as a belligerent power was not affected by the treaty, but as a general was so materially, and in either view, he must equally be disposed to reject it. His whole riches consisted in his bravery, his possessions in his sword. War alone gave him greatness and importance, and war alone could realize the project which his ambition suggested. But of all who declaimed against the Treaty of Prague, none was so loud in their clamors as the Swedes, and none had so much reason for their opposition. Invited to Germany by the Germans themselves, the champions of the Protestant Church and the freedom of states, which they had defended with so much bloodshed and with the sacred life of their king, they now saw themselves suddenly and shamefully abandoned disappointed in all their hopes, without reward and without gratitude, driven from the empire for which they have toiled and bled, and exposed to the ridicule of the enemy by the very princes who owed everything to them. No satisfaction, no indemnification for the expenses which they had incurred, no equivalent for the conquest which they were to leave behind them, was provided by the Treaty of Prague. They were to be dismissed poorer than they came, or, if they resisted, to be expelled by the very powers who had invited them. The Elector of Saxony at least spoke of a pecuniary indemnification, and mentioned the small sum of 2,500,000 florins, but the Swedes had already expended considerably more, and this disgraceful equivalent in money was both contrary to their true interest and injurious to their pride. The electors of Bavaria and Saxony, replied Oxenstern, have been paid for their services which, as vassals, they were bound to render the emperor, with the possessions of important provinces, and shall we, who had sacrificed our king for Germany, be dismissed with the miserable sum of 2,500,000 florins. The disappointment of their expectation was the more severe, because the Swedes had calculated upon being recompensed with the Duchy of Pomerania, 
the present possessor of which was old and without heirs. But the succession of this territory was confirmed by the Treaty of Prague to the Elector of Brandenburg, and all the neighboring powers declared against allowing the Swedes to obtain a footing within the empire. Never in the whole course of the war had the prospect of the Swedes looked more gloomy than in the year 1635, immediately after the conclusion of Treaty of Prague. Many of their allies, particularly among the free cities, abandoned them to benefit by the peace. Others were compelled to accede to it by the victorious arms of the emperor. Augsburg, subdued by famine, surrendered under severest conditions. Würzburg and Coburg were lost to the Austrians. The League of Heilbronn was formally dissolved. Nearly whole of Upper Germany, the chief seat of Swedish power, was reduced under the emperor. Saxony, on the strength of the Treaty of Prague, demanded the evacuation of Thuringia, Halberstadt, and Magdeburg. Philipsburg, the military depot of France, was surprised by the Austrians with all the stores it contained, and this severe loss checked the activity of France. To complete the embarrassment of Sweden, the truce with Poland was drawn to a close. To support the war at the same time with Poland and in Germany was far beyond the power of Sweden, and all that remained was to choose between them. Pride and ambition declared in favor of continuing the German war, at whatever sacrifice on the side of Poland. An army, however, was necessary to command the respect of Poland, and to give weight to Sweden in any negotiations for truce or peace. The mind of Oxenstiern, firm and inexhaustible in expedience, set itself manfully to meet these calamities, which all combined to overwhelm Sweden and his shrewd understanding taught him how to turn even misfortunes to his advantage. The defection of so many German cities of the empire deprived him, it is true, of a great part of his former allies, but at the same time it freed him from the necessity of paying any regard to their interest. The more the number of his enemies increased, the more provinces and magazines were open to his troops. The gross ingratitude of the states, and the haughty contempt with which the emperor behaved, who did not even condescend to treat directly with him about a peace, excited him in the courage of despair and noble determination to maintain the struggle to the last. The continuance of war, however unfortunate it might prove, could not render the situation of Sweden worse than it now was, and if Germany was to be evacuated, it was at least better and nobler to do so, sword in hand, and to yield to force rather than to fear. In the extremity in which the Swedes were now placed by the desertion of their allies, they addressed themselves to France, who met them with the greatest encouragement. The interests of the two crowns were closely united, and France would have injured herself by allowing the Swedish power in Germany to decline. The helpless situation of the Swedes was rather an additional motive with France to cement more closely their alliance and to take a more active part in the German war. Since the alliance with Sweden at Beerwald in 1632, France had maintained the war against the emperor, 
by the arms of Gustavus Adolphus, without any open or formal breach, by furnishing subsidies and increasing the number of his enemies. But, alarmed at the unexpected rapidity and success of the Swedish arms, France, in anxiety to restore the balance of power, which was disturbed by the preponderance of the Swedes, seemed, for a time, to have lost sight of her original designs. She endeavored to protect the Roman Catholic princes of the empire against the Swedish conqueror by the treaties of neutrality, and when this plan failed, she even meditated herself to declare war against him. But no snow had the death of Gustavus Adolphus and the desperate situation of the Swedish affairs dispelled this apprehension. Then she returned with a fresh zeal to her first design and readily afforded in this misfortune the aid which in the hour of success she had refused. Freed from the checks which the ambition and vigilance of Gustavus Adolphus placed upon her plans of aggrandizement, France availed herself of the favorable opportunity afforded by the defeat of Nordlingen to obtain the entire direction of the war and to prescribe laws to those who sued for her powerful protection. The moment seemed to smile upon her boldest plans, and those which had formerly seemed chimerical now appeared to be justified by circumstances. She now turned her whole attention to the war in Germany, and as soon as she had secured her own private ends by a treaty with the Germans, she suddenly entered the political arena as an active and a commanding power. While the other belligerent states had been exhausting themselves in a tedious contest, France had been reserving her strength and maintained the contest by money alone. And now, when the state of things called for more active measures, she seized the sword and astonished Europe by the boldness and magnitude of her undertakings. At the same moment, she fitted out two fleets and sent six different armies into the field, while she subsidized foreign crown and several of the German princes. Animated by this powerful cooperation, the Swedes and the Germans awoke from the consternation and hoped, sword in hand, to obtain a more honorable peace than that of Prague. Abandoned by their confederates who had been reconciled to the emperor, they formed a still closer alliance with France, which increased her support with their growing necessities, at the same time taking a more active, although secret share in the German war, until at last she threw off the mask altogether and in her own name made an unequivocal declaration of war against the emperor. To leave Sweden at full liberty to act against Austria, France commenced operations by liberating it from all fear of a Polish war. By means of the Count de Vaux, as minister, an agreement was concluded between the two powers at Stumstorp in Prussia, by which the truce was prolonged for 26 years, though not without a great sacrifice on the part of the Swedes who ceded by a single stroke of the pen almost the whole of Polish Prussia, the dear boat conquest of Gustavus Adolphus. The Treaty of Beerwald was, with certain modifications which circumstances rendered necessary, renewed at different times in Compiègne, 
and afterwards at Wismar and Hamburg. France had already come to a rupture with Spain in May 1635, and the vigorous attack which it made upon that power deprived the emperor of his most valuable auxiliaries from the Netherlands. By supporting the landgrave William of Castle and Duke Bernard of Weimar, the Swedes were enabled to act with more vigor upon the Elbe and the Danube, and the diversion upon the Rhine compelled the emperor to divide his force. The war was now prosecuted with increasing activity. By the Treaty of Prague, the emperor had lessened the number of his adversaries within the empire, though at the same time the zeal and activity of his foreign enemies had been augmented by it. In Germany, his influence was almost unlimited, for, with the exception of few states, he had rendered himself absolute master of the German body and its resources, and was again enabled to act in the character of the emperor and sovereign. The first fruits of his power was the elevation of son, Ferdinand III, to the dignity of king of the Romans, to which he was elected by a decided majority of votes, notwithstanding the opposition of Treve and the heirs of the elector Palatine. But on the other hand, he had exasperated the Swedes to desperation, had armed the power of France against him, and drawn its troops into the heart of the kingdom. France and Sweden, with their German allies, formed from this moment one firm and compactly united power. The emperor, with the German states which adhered to him, were equally firm and united. The Swedes, who no longer fought for Germany, but for their own lives showed no more indulgence. Relieved from the necessity of consulting their German allies or accounting to them for the plans which they adopted, they acted with more precipitation, rapidity, and boldness. Battles, though less decisive, became more obstinate and bloody. Great achievements, both in bravery and military skill, were performed, but they were but insulated efforts and being neither dictated by any consistent plan nor improved by any commanding spirit had comparatively little influence upon the course of the war saxony had bound herself by the treaty of prague to expel the swedes from germany from this moment the banners of saxons and the imperialists were united the former confederates were converted into implacable enemies the archbishopric of magdeburg which by the treaty was ceded to the prince of saxony was still held by the swedes and every attempt to require it by negotiation had proved ineffectual hostilities commenced by the elector of saxony recalling all his subjects from the army of banner which was encamped upon the elbe the officers long irritated by the accumulation of their arrears obeyed their summons and evacuated one quarter after another as the Saxons at the same time made movement toward Mecklenburg to take damage and to drive the Swedes from Pomerania and the Baltic, Banner suddenly marched thither, relieved damage, and totally defeated the Saxon general Baudisson with 7,000 men, of whom 1,000 were slain, and about the same number taken prisoners. Reinforced by the troops and artillery, which had hitherto been employed in Polish Prussia, but which the Treaty of Stumstorf rendered unnecessary, this brave and impetuous general made the following year, 1636, 
a sudden inroad into the electorate of Saxony, where he gratified his inveterate hatred of the Saxons by the most destructive ravages. Irritated by the memory of all the grievances which, during their common campaigns, he and the Swedes had suffered from the haughtiness of the Saxons, and now exasperated to the utmost by the late defection of the elector, they wrecked upon the unfortunate inhabitants all their rancor. Against Austria and Bavaria, the Swedish soldier had fought from a sense, as it were, of duty, but against the Saxons, they contended with all the energy of private animosity and personal revenge, detesting them as deserters and traitors. For the hatred of former friends is of all the most fierce and irreconcilable. The powerful diversion made by Duke of Weimar and Landgrave of Hesse upon the Rhine and Westphalia prevented the Emperor from affording the necessary assistance to Saxony and left the whole electorate exposed to the destructive ravages of Banner's army. At length, the elector, having formed a junction with the imperial general Hatzfeld, advanced against Magdeburg, which Banner in vain hastened to relieve. The united army of the imperialists and the Saxons now spread itself over Brandenburg, wrested several places from Sweden, and almost drove them to the Baltic. But, Contrary to all expectation, Banner, who had been given up as lost, attacked the Allies on 24th of September 1636 at Fitchstock, where a bloody battle took place. The onset was terrific, and the whole force of the enemy was directed against the right wing of the Swede, which was led by Banner in person. The contest was long maintained with equal animosity and obstinacy on both sides. There was not a squadron among Swedes which did not return ten times to the charge to be as often repulsed, when at last Banner was obliged to retire before the superior numbers of the enemy. His left wing sustained the combat until night, and the second line of the Swedes, which had not as yet been engaged, was prepared to renew it the next morning. But the elector did not wait for a second attack. His army was exhausted by the efforts of the preceding day, and as the drivers had fled with the horses, his artillery was unserviceable. He accordingly retreated in the night with Count Hatzfeld and relinquished the ground to Swede. About 5,000 of the Allies fell upon the field, exclusive of those who were killed in the pursuit or who fell into the hands of the exasperated peasantry. 150 standards and colors, 23 pieces of cannon, the whole baggage and silver plate of the elector were captured, and more than 2,000 men taken prisoners. This brilliant victory achieved over an enemy far superior in numbers and in a very advantageous position restored the Swedes at once to their former reputation. Their enemies were discouraged, and their friends inspired with new hopes. Banner instantly followed up this decisive success, and hastily crossing the Elbe, drove the imperialists before him through the Tringia and Hesse into Westphalia. Then he returned and took up his winter quarters in Saxony. But without the material aid furnished by the diversion upon the Rhine and the activity there of Duke Bernard and the French, these important successes would have been unattainable. 
Duke Bernard, after the defeat of Nordlingen, reorganized his broken army at Wetterau, but abandoned by the confederates of the League of Heilbronn, which had been dissolved by the Peace of Prague, and receiving little support from the Swedes, he found himself unable to maintain an army or to perform any enterprise of importance. The defeat at Nordlingen had terminated all his hopes on the Dutch of Franconia, while the weakness of the Swedes destroyed the chance of retrieving his fortunes through their assistance. Tired, too, of the constraint imposed upon him by the imperious chancellor, he turned his attention to France, who could easily supply him with money, the only aid which he required, and France readily acceded to his proposals. Richelieu desired nothing so much as to diminish the influence of the Swedes in German war and to obtain the direction of it for himself. To secure this end, nothing appeared more effectual than to detach from the Swedes their bravest general, to win him to the interest of France, and to secure for the execution of the project the services of his arm. From a prince like Bernard, who could not maintain himself without foreign support, France has nothing to fear, since no success, however brilliant, could render him independent of that crown. Bernard himself came into France, and in October 1635 concluded a treaty at Saint-Germain-en-Laye, not as a Swedish general, but in his own name, by which it was stipulated that he should receive for himself a yearly pension of 1,500,000 livres, and four millions for the support of his army, which he was to command under the orders of the French king. To inflame his zeal and to accelerate the conquest of Alsace, France did not hesitate by a secret article to promise him that province for his services, a promise which Richelieu had little intention of performing, and which the duke also estimated at its real worth. But Bernard confided in his good fortune and in his arms, and met artifice with dissimulation. If he could once succeed in wresting Alsace from the enemy, he did not despair of being able, in case of need, to maintain it also against a friend. He now raised an army at the expense of France, which he commanded nominally under the orders of that power, but in reality without any limitation whatever, and without having wholly abandoned his engagements with Sweden. He began his operations upon the Rhine, where another French army under Cardinal Lavalette had already in 1635 commenced hostilities against the emperor. Against this force, the main body of the imperialists, after the great victory of Nordlingen and the reduction of Swabia and Franconia had advanced under the command of Gallas, had driven them as far as Metz, uh, cleared the Rhine and took from the Swedes the towns of Metz and Frankenthal, of which they were in possession. But, frustrated by the vigorous resistance of the French and his main object of taking up his winter quarters in France, he led back his exhausted troops into Alsace and Swabia. At the opening of next campaign, he passed the Rhine at Breisach and prepared to carry the war into the interior of France. He actually entered Burgundy, whilst the Spaniards from the Netherlands made progress in Picardy, and John de Verts, a formidable general of the League and a celebrated partisan, pushed his march into Champagne 
and spread consternation even to the gates of Paris. But an insignificant fortress in Franche Comte completely checked the imperialists, and they were obliged second time to abandon their enterprise. End of part two.